Happy Father's Day and happy Semana del Hombre. Don't forget that. It started right here. When it, comes, when it takes the world by storm and suddenly everyone's celebrating it, you'll know where it started. If you're new with us today, you, uh, we're in a series titled Modern Problems, Ancient Solutions. And we've been looking at some of the typical issues that have plagued society in our modern culture. Uh, things like anxiety or, or self-identity or anxiousness or uncertainty or even uh, mortality or death, all these issues that seem to be greater and greater issues, even when we have medical technologies that allow us to address more and more issues than we ever have, people seem to struggle with death and mortality more than they ever have. Even though we have more technology and more solutions for all the different issues that we face, we tend to have more anxiety, greater issues with self-identity than at any other time in history. What's interesting, though, is these problems, as much as they may seem like they're uh, exclusive to us today, have really been issues throughout time. And we've been diving back and looking at some ancient solutions, time-tested solutions, that have addressed these issues for hundreds and thousands of years. And today we want to look at the, uh, the, the problem of anxiety. Anxiety, I was reading this week, anxiety and anxiety disorders are among the most common mental illnesses in the U.S., affecting more than 40 million people. They cost the U.S. more than $42 billion a year, uh, nearly one-third of the country's $148 billion total mental health bill. That's according to the National Institute of Mental Health. So the way I figure it is, not only should today's message help us deal with anxiety, but the money we save should pay for our new building as well. So I mean, this is just a win-win solution we have going on here, uh, going on. To, uh, honestly, seriously, today and next Sunday, I want to deal with two topics that are both incredibly common and incredibly misunderstood. Today we'll deal with anxiety, and next week we're going to deal with depression and discouragement. And anxiety this week, I hope, is to deal with these things in a biblical and holistic manner. Unfortunately, what I've come to realize about these issues is, is our world tends to address them from a very uh, single-minded way, uh, focusing primarily on the physical side of things, and as a result, often running too quickly and only to medicine to solve the problem. Uh, and unfortunately, Christians haven't always really been any better. They swing to an almost an overly spiritual solution to a lot of these things, neglecting any physical aspect at all, and think, if I just pray and read my Bible more, I can solve all these problems. What I will hope to do over the next couple of weeks is address these things from a more biblical and holistic manner that treats us as both spiritual and physical beings as the Bible says we are, and how we can address these issues in a way that's both honoring to God and helpful for people in the midst of these challenges. So today we're going to look at anxiety, and I'm going to give you three keys to facing anxiety when it comes into your life. Three keys to facing anxiety when it comes into your life. One key is a perspective. The second key is a pursuit. And the final key is patience. A perspective, a pursuit, and patience. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 27. Psalm 27. 
We read it earlier, so I won't read it again, but we'll touch on several of the points as we go through it. But Psalm 27 is a psalm written by David, King David. Uh, Obviously, either in in the midst of a difficult situation or in reflecting upon some of the difficult situations he may have faced or knew he was going to face. And so as we address it, let's look at the strategies for facing anxiety and see how David faced it, but ultimately how we can take these principles and apply them in our lives. So the first one is, is a perspective. Here's what I want you to see right out of the shoots. The first one is consider who I have in the worst case scenario. Consider who I have in the worst case scenario. Let me show you a handful of verses throughout Psalm 27 that we read earlier uh, that touch on this. David says this, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Then he says this, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. David's not in the midst of that situation. He's posing scenarios. Hey, when this happens in my life, he's not saying if it happens. He's saying when this happens, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, so there he is stating scenarios again. Hey, a whole army can encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Moving on, he states some other statements. He says in verse 10, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. It's interesting in the, in the history of David, we don't really see that necessarily happening. We don't know a situation where his father and mother necessarily forsook him. But I think it's because in this psalm, as David often does in poetry, he's posing possible scenarios. He's looking at possibilities of what could happen. Even if an army comes, even if my evildoers come around me and they want to eat my flesh or devour me, they won't stand a chance. Here's what's interesting. If you've spent any time reading on modern thought on anxiety or maybe you've read a book dealing with anxiety, they often teach you several different techniques uh, along this lines. Uh, think about a more positive outcome. You know, don't be so negative. So they try to say, p- think of, you might, you're getting anxious about this situation, that situation. Try to picture something that's more positive that could happen and focus your mind on that. Trust that it isn't going to be as bad as you think. That's another common technique in in modern-day books on anxiety. In essence, the heart of modern teaching is to avoid thinking of the negative and try to focus on the positive. That's modern psychology on anxiety. Interestingly, though, the Bible takes the exact opposite perspective. The Bible says, don't try to avoid reality, The Bible says, hey, create the worst possible reality that you could face and then consider what you have in that situation. And that's exactly what David says. When all my enemies are encamped around me, when evildoers are trying to devour me, when even my parents abandon me, what do I have left? And he goes, I got God. God is my strength. You see, Modern thought eliminates and doesn't help you deal with reality. Modern thought just tries to play a mental game with you 
to consider the fact that, no, pretend your parents aren't going to die. Pretend your child isn't as in difficult a situation as it is. Focus on the positive. Focus on the positive. But the problem is, many times, that positive outcome does not happen. And it leaves you in a worse state than you were before because you've created false expectations that you have no control over. Where the Bible says, flip that around. Consider the worst possible thing that could happen. And then recognize that in the worst possible scenario, you still have the best possible result you could get. You have God. You have the one who is, has control over life and death. You have the one who is going to renew and rejuvenate and recreate this whole world. It allows you to have courage when you face those difficulties rather than more anxiety if your perceived outcome isn't going to happen. You see, one of the ancient fathers speaks about anxiety, and he says this is where anxiety comes from. He says all of us have good things in our lives, we, things we like, things we desire, good things like parents, children, jobs, hobbies, you know, things that we enjoy. We all have those good things in our lives, and there's nothing wrong with them. But anxiety comes when those good things become the most important thing. And once we transfer something that's a good thing into the ultimate thing, once we create something that's a finite thing in our lives, it's a good, finite thing, and we turn it into an infinite thing, now you come to the source of debilitating anxiety. Because every good thing that you hold in this life, in this world, will one day be lost. Because this world is temporal. God tells us that from the very beginning. And so when we elevate them to something that's not temporal, something that's not finite, we set ourselves up for anxiety. You see, anxiety is like smoke. If you follow the trail of smoke all the way down, you'll find the fire. And the fire is a false god that we have created and began to worship that is beginning to implode in our lives because it cannot sustain the weight and the worship that we have put on it. And that's what anxiety is. It's taking the wrong things and making them the one thing in your life that will make you happy. See, some of you are here and you're eaten up with worry and anxiety right now. You think it's unfair because you're worried about a person, how you're gonna feed your family, your job, your health, you know, whatever it might be. And you think it's unfair. I, I'm, I'm worrying about good things and those are good things, but they're not the one thing. And as long as we make anything other than God himself, the thing that our happiness and our joy and our security is based on, you've doomed yourself to a life of incredible anxiety. You can't help but be anxious. Let me put it this way. A little anxiety is normal, but debilitating anxiety and devastating anxiety shows that we have taken a good thing and we've made it the absolute thing in our lives. And that's where our struggle is. 
as Christians. That's where our struggle is as humans. So how do we deal with this kind of anxiety or how do we overcome anxiety? Well, once we've had this perspective that consider the worst case scenario like David said and realize, hey, even in the worst case scenario, we have the most important thing in our lives still present. There's some other things we can do. The first one is this, pursue an intimacy of delight in God. Pursue an intimacy of delight in God. Let me show you this a little bit, and I'll show you two ways in which this psalm tells us how to do this. Uh, Here's what David says in the psalm about this. He says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So look at what David's saying here. There's one thing that he's asked for. You see, he's made the one thing the most important thing. And what is that one thing? That he may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty. We're going to talk about what that means. David's speaking in poetic ways here based on how they related to God in the Old Testament. There's some other verses. Let's take a look at a few more that he talks about in here. Verses 8 and 9 say this. You have said, now David's saying this about what God has said. You have said, God, seek my face. And now David's saying, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Now let me explain a little bit about what David's saying and put it in light of the Old Testament. David's speaking metaphorically here. He he doesn't want to live in the temple. He couldn't live in the temple. That was only where the priests would go and and serve God and, and go through the different ritual sacrifices that they would perform in the Old Testament. But he's speaking metaphorically because in the Old Testament, even though God's present everywhere, his unique, intimate presence, he said, would dwell within the temple. In the Holy of Holies is where a unique presence of God dwelled. And David was saying, what I want more than anything else, God, is I want unbroken fellowship with you. Not just an awareness of you, not just walking outside and saying, wow, God, in your creation, it just is amazing. That's, that's a general sense of God's presence. But David's saying, that's not enough. I want an intimate fellowship with you, God. I want to live in your house. I want to be in the place where you are. I want to seek your face. And when they would talk about in their times seeking a person's face or knowing their face, they were talking about an intimate one-on-one relationship that they had with someone. Let me illustrate it like this. Every Sunday when you come here and we go through our worship, you're in the presence of our worship team. Right, you get to sing and you're in the presence of every one of these members on our worship team up here. And we get to enjoy them. But you know what? You don't have a face-to-face relationship with them unless after they leave the stage, you go and seek one of them out and say, hey, I want to get to know you a little bit more. I want to enjoy you and, and find out who you are and kind of what makes you tick. You see, when we walk in creation, when we just go through life in general, we're in God's general presence all the time. You can't escape that. But there's a big difference from knowing and being in God's general presence and taking the time to go and seek him face to face and really know him. That's what David's talking about here. 
That's what he's saying will help him and solidify him when everything else is crumbling around him. You know what? A general sense of God's presence is not going to do much for you in your anxiety. Not until you know him face to face. Not until you get to know him in a very intimate and personal way will you have a security that's strong enough to take you through the most anxious of times. See, here's what's interesting about it. There's a a clear purpose, and this is very important. There's a clear purpose to this intimacy that David has, and it's in order to delight or gaze upon God's beauty. And you see that in this passage when he says, to gaze upon your beauty, uh, that's what David wants. That's the one thing he wants, the beauty of the Lord, to inquire, to learn from him in the temple, to have a face-to-face, to enjoy him, to delight in him, to just find great hope and satisfaction in God himself. That's the purpose of this intimacy that David seeks. And that's really important because many of us, if we're honest, seek intimacy for the wrong motives. This happens all the time. We try to get close to someone, not because we're all that interested in knowing that person, but because we want what they can give us in a given situation. You know the ones I'm talking about. You know those classmates that brown nose the teacher? And you know they don't really like the teacher, but they're just brown nosing and buttering up the teacher so they can get what they want out of the class or out of the teacher. You know the coworker that's always buttering up the boss and, oh, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And you know that they don't want anything to do with the boss because you've heard them talk about the boss outside of the boss's presence. But when the boss is there, they're all happy and buttering them up because they want that next promotion. You know the type of people that try to be well-connected with certain people or intimate with certain people in the city not because they want to be with that person, not because they enjoy that person, because they stand to benefit from them. That's intimacy for the sake of manipulation. But that's not what we see with David. David's saying, God, I want to be in your house. I want to live near you. Why? Because I just want to take you in. I want to gaze upon your beauty. I want to ask you questions. I just want to learn from you. David gets it. David realizes there is only one thing worth pursuing with all of our heart, with all of our soul. There's only one thing that our souls were created to be satisfied by, and that is God himself. But instead, we'd rather run around chasing after all these broken, created things that we think will satisfy us, but continue to hurt us and disappoint us and raise our anxiety levels. Because we never look past what one author says, the shadows of God, to actually look upon him in all his goodness and glory. That's why David got it. He was willing to pursue God for himself. Now, let me just show you two things in this passage of what that looks like. How do you pursue God, an intimacy with God, or delight in God? The first one is this. You meditate until I delight in God. Meditate until I delight in God. Now, we talked about meditation a couple weeks ago. It's not this earthly, worldly meditation where you're disconnecting and just making weird noises over and over again until everything disappears. Remember, that's a disconnection from reality. All that does is is it's like getting drunk or getting stoned. 
You feel good for a moment, but when you come back, not only do you have the same problems, but you have worse problems because of how you disconnected. Real meditation, godly meditation, causes you to face reality with the most clearest and honest truth that there is. And it means you include God's perspective in it. So meditate until I delight. What you do in that is you learn a truth, right? As you study your Bible, you learn a truth. Then you ponder that truth. You think about it until you understand it. You, you think of how it changes your perception of God or life or people. And then you learn to delight in the truth. You consider its outcome and its fulfillment in your life. Now I jotted down some, some thoughts on this because this is really important. This meditating until you delight. This is actually very central and core to true Christianity. And here's why. You could obey almost all the commandments in the Bible, the outward commandments in the Bible, and never be a Christian. It's possible to do that. It's possible to live according to the Ten Commandments and and a lot of the other commands in the Bible outwardly and not even really be a true Christian. People do it all the time. In fact, characters in the Bible did that. The Pharisees are the epitome of just that. Outwardly, they tried to set up these structures that made them look like they were obeying all the principles of God. But Jesus called them out because Jesus could see through their actions to their heart. And he said, your lips, your hearts are far from me. You see, the epitome of Christianity is not just doing what God says. It's not duty, it's delight. Because anyone can perform a duty. It takes a changed person to actually delight in the one whom you're obeying. And even though that's a, a transformational work that takes place when we're born again, it's also something we have to put a little effort into as Christians. You work at keeping your delight in the right spot. That's what meditation is. In fact, if you read your Bible only for facts, you are worse off than not reading it at all. If you don't take the time to meditate and ponder and grow in your delight of God, you are worse off after reading the Bible than you were before. Because now you're accountable for something that you know, but you don't delight in doing. At best, you're moralistic. At worst, you've created more condemnation for yourself because you've just heaped things into your life that you have no desire to do. And God sees your heart as well as he sees your actions. This is so important that you stop and think through a truth until you delight in the God who gave it to you. See, if you put your devotional study, Bible study time before your experience of delight in God, you've accomplished at best self-motivated moralism. You need to come to a place where you delight in the one whom you worship. The second thing meditation does is you meditate until you want to obey God. You meditate until you delight in God and you meditate until you want to obey God. These are kind of one and the same thing, but I'm giving you a little bit of a breakdown as we see in here. Let me go through these real quick. Meditate until I delight. Let me show you the passages on these real quick. Verse four, the end of verse four says this, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. 
Here's where he's meditating until God leads him on a path. That lead me on a level path is not just for ease. That was a, a concept of moral direction. That was a metaphor they used to say, hey, rather than this up and down and all around where I'm wandering and doing my own thing, a level path was a path that was laid out according to God's truth. And, and David is doing that. He's saying, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. He's saying, keep me on the right path. I want to know how to follow you. I want to know how to obey you. See, often we stop in our Bible study at have to when we read the Bible. I have to serve others. I have to love my wife. I have to love my husband. I have to discipline my kids. I have to be a good father and provider. I have to go to church. I have to, I have to, I have to. But that's not gonna do it for us. That's not gonna change you. See, if you leave your Bible study with a dozen have to's, like I mentioned before, you are worse off for your time in the Bible than if you would have never opened your Bible at all. Because now you're doing things that you don't want to do. You aren't allowing God to change your heart. You're saying, God, I'll do this, but I don't believe that you know what's best for me. That's what have to says. You need to sit and ponder and meditate until you go, God, you are so much bigger and better than I thought. You are right about why I should do this. Now I want to. I need to. What does it look like to, to do that? Well, you ponder the outcome. Let's say you're, you're a business person, and, and God's word says he loves just scales. He wants honesty in how we operate in business. You go, oh man, I have to be honest. All right, I'll, I have to be honest. But you know what? You'll be honest as long as it benefits you, but when you feel like you're gonna lose out on a situation, you're gonna go back to doing what you want to do. Because you didn't take the time to meditate to say, I delight in you, God, who is honest, and I want to obey you because I do now finally see why it's best. But what if you stop after saying that and saying, God, you say that honesty is best? Let me just meditate. Let me ponder that. How do I like to be treated, God? When I go to a local business, do I always want to be on my toes thinking, how are they going to cheat me? Man, they're going to take advantage of me. Do you like it when someone cheats you and is dishonest with you when you go through a business transaction? Man, I don't like that, God. I'd feel so much better and I'd have so much more joy living in a community where I knew I could walk into every business and know I'm gonna get an honest interaction with that businessman. Hmm, that's interesting. I know, God, that you're going to come one day and you're gonna set everything straight. You're gonna reward those who have faithfully followed you and you're gonna punish those who have rejected you. And when you come, God, how do I want you to be? Do I want you to be dishonest? Do I want you to suddenly change the rules when you come and what you said you were gonna do? You say, well, I changed my mind. Or do I want you to do exactly what you said you're gonna do? And even if my honesty may bring temporal pain in this world because other people aren't honest to me. I know that when you return, you will faithfully do exactly what you said. So even little I may have lost in this temporal world, I will gain infinitely when you return. That's a good thing, God. That gives me courage. That gives me hope. 
And now suddenly you want to be honest because you realize it's best all around, that you are cheating yourself when you're dishonest, just like you're cheating everyone else. That's what meditation does. You see, meditation and worry, which associates with anxiety, are honestly the exact same thing. They just focus on a different object. What do you do when you worry? Oh, I'm not sure I'm gonna be able to pay the bills this week, and if I can't pay the bills, then what's gonna happen? I'm gonna lose my home, my family's probably gonna leave me, I'm gonna, not gonna be able to eat, I'm gonna die. You're, you're, you're pondering the possible outcome, aren't you? Over and over and over again. You think about it at night, you think about it when you wake up. You're running scenarios and you're running the outcome over and over again. That's what worry is. The problem is worry is focusing on the wrong object, the objects of this world, worship, or meditation is focusing on the person of God. You're doing the exact same thing. You just have a different object. So you can't say, well, Chad, I, I don't know that I know how to do that. You do. We all do. We were born with that mechanism because God created us. The problem is we focus it on the things of this world and things that can never satisfy our worry and God's waiting for us to turn it to him and say, take that same thing and focus it on me and watch how it changes your life. Last point. We've seen a perspective. We've seen a pursuit. And now we see a patience. David ends with this, and I summarize it like this. Courageously wait with my focus on eternity. Courageously wait with my focus on on eternity. Here's how David said it at the end of the psalm. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David makes an affirmation of faith that, that they didn't even know what we know in terms of the Old Testament and eternity. He says, I believe that I will shall look along upon the land of the, or the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. They were waiting for an earthly kingdom that had to take a lot longer than they thought, but he knew that that was the outcome of the faithful person that followed God. That it, at some point, how that looked, they didn't know all the details. They didn't have the revelation that we have now, but he knew that one day he would look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living but it may not be at this moment he knew he was going to die in this world but he knew in the next he was going to look upon the goodness of the Lord and so he was telling himself wait for the Lord be strong let your heart take courage it was his focus he was focusing his attention on the ultimate end you see that's ultimately our problem we just keep our focus a little too short it ends in this world and if your focus is constantly on the things of this world then anxiety is your destiny but if you'll just take that focus and rather than worrying about this temporal future you'll worship because of the eternal one that waits you It'll allow you to have a courage and a strength to walk through the most difficult circumstances that this world could throw at you. There seems to be a time 
in Jesus' life when he experienced the very anxiety that he's teaching us to avoid in this passage. It's interesting. Uh, it might make you wonder if this really works, then why didn't it help Jesus? The time I'm referring to is, is the night when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was going to be betrayed that night. He was going to be crucified the next day. And he prayed three times. God, if there is any other way, please take this cup from me. The Bible says he was discouraged. He was stressed. He was worried. He was anxious. In fact, here's three words that are used in the Bible and, and what they actually meant. One of them was distressed. That describes him as, and it means to be excessively affected by the negative emotion of excitement or fear. That's what we would call anxiety today. Another word it used was troubled. It means this, to become subject to extreme mental anguish to the point of losing one's composure, to be despondent or hopeless. Another word that described him in that state was anguish, and that means extreme mental distress, very sorrowful, crushed by grief. So why would Jesus succumb to something he is teaching us to be courageous through? How can we follow his example when it seems like he wasn't able to do it himself? Well, the Bible tells us because what Jesus was facing in that moment is the one thing that we have absolute security that we'll never face. You see, Jesus wasn't just facing the loss of his life. Jesus wasn't just facing the disappointment of his disciples. He wasn't just facing the loss of his economic stability or his clothing or his ability to take care of himself. Jesus was facing the loss of his one thing at that moment. You see, for all of eternity, all Jesus had ever known was perfect, face-to-face, -face, beautiful, wonderful, delightful glory and fellowship with his Father. But he knew that the only way you and I could ever discover that, the only way you and I, who constantly put our worship on the things of this world, could ever finally enjoy the beautiful presence of his Father was for him to accept our consequence. Jesus knew that in that moment, in those three days and three nights, that he was in the cross, that he was in the grave, that he would be separated from the one thing that mattered most to him. And that is the source of true anxiety. That should be the thing that so tears at our hearts that it would cause us like him to actually sweat blood, to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not when we lose our job, not when we face some health issues, not when you, know, you put it on there, but when we face a situation where our very sustenance, our very hope, our very maker, is going to be ripped apart from us. That's true anxiety. Why would Jesus do that? Jesus did that so that you and I who deserve to be separated could instead look at that cross 
and know because he was separated for you and for me that absolutely nothing in this world could ever separate you from his love. Church, that's how you address anxiety. That's how you address worry and concern in this world, is you look to the cross and you look at the one who is willing to experience the most horrible of anxieties, the most horrible of separations for you and me so that we could know without a doubt that we will never be separated from the one thing that can truly satisfy us. So what is it in your life that's causing anxiety? Where is that smoke trail lead to? If you identify the anxieties in your life and you follow that smoke down to the fire, what's the fire? Is it a relationship that you've turned into the one thing in your life that if you don't have this relationship, then everything's gonna crumble? Is it your job? Is it your family? Is it your financial situation? You see, follow your anxiety down to that false God and you'll find the source of your problem. And then you repent of that false God and you put there the only God who experienced that trouble for you so that you wouldn't have to. You see, your money will not die on a cross for you. Your relationship will not sacrifice like that for you. Your career will not do what Jesus did for you. And anytime you put something as the one thing that did not love you like Jesus did, you're destined for anxiety. My prayer is that we all learn to face these challenges, not by avoiding them, not by pretending that difficulties aren't gonna come, but by clinging to the very one who will strengthen us when they do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you for David who was honest in his walk with you and, and was real with the troubles that he walked through and, and wrote about them and, and had a heart that pursued after you in the midst of them. But Father, thank you most of all for Jesus, who is the epitome of worship in these psalms, who worshiped you perfectly in the midst of his anxiety. When his anxiety was true, he was going to be ripped apart from you, something he had never experienced. And that's the one thing that caused immense anxiety in his life. Lord, he was willing to live as one who had nowhere to lay his head. He was willing to be rejected by his own family members. He was willing to be turned aside and, and mocked and even abandoned by his closest friends, his disciples whom he'd spent his whole ministry on. None of those things seemed to shake him. But when he thought about having to lose you for those moments, it rocked him to his core. Because you are all he wanted. So God, help us to see 
your goodness through Jesus, who when he could have had anything this world offered, what he wanted most was you. In Jesus' name we pray.